Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you into uh, to Crossroads this morning. If you're here in the room, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're here with us today. Um, before we jump into the sermon this morning, too, uh, I want to just take a moment and pause. Um, I know many of you have been kind of keeping up with what's going on around the world, and if you're like me, uh, you know, it's hard for me to, you know, to watch the news and know what's going on because I just don't know what I'm hearing, what I'm seeing. And, and so uh, that can be confusing. It can, it can, you know, cause us to get all sorts of ranges of emotions with what's happening on the other side of the world right now. But we serve a God who knows exactly what's going on. And, and God's in control. And so we're just going to take a moment before we jump into this, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Um, for the people of, of Ukraine, for the people who are not only in danger right now, but the people, too, who are just so confused by it that it's leading to more and more issues on top of issues. So let's just pause for a moment, and let's just pray. Father, we, we're so grateful that we can come to you, God, with, with our issues, even if we don't fully understand them because you do. God, we know that you do. And so, God, we just pray right now for the people of Ukraine, for what's going on there, for the, the, the protection of them as they're being uh, invaded and oppressed. But, God, too, for the, the people of Russia who don't want this and who are fighting against this as well, too. God, we pray for everybody who is basically under the thumb of somebody else. We pray that you would be with them, that you would uh, strengthen them and you would encourage them. God, we're grateful to see the images of the church in Ukraine coming out and, and leading people to hope. God, we just pray that you would give them boldness and courage to continue fighting for you. God, be with our leadership in our country and leaders around the world that you would give them wisdom and that they would follow that wisdom. They would listen to you and follow you above all else. God, we know that you are in control of, of, of lives, that you are, God, we know that you are the, you've got the world in your hand. So God, we just pray today that you would be with everyone there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been, uh, since the first of the year, in this series called Check It Out, where we've kind of worked through the Bible and, and hit the major themes of the Bible, and we've mostly been camped out in the Old Testament so far. Last week, <coughs> Brad stepped out of the Old Testament, but didn't quite step into the New Testament. He kind of preached the part of the Bible that's not in the Bible preach that, that time between the two testaments, so to speak, what we, what we might call the intertestamental period, and he did use the Bible, so if you missed it, it wasn't like he just got up here and talked, like he did use the Bible, don't worry. But if you missed that one, or if you've missed any part of this series, I would encourage you to uh, jump on our website or our YouTube page, you can go and, and, and see those sermons that, we, that we've done up to this point, hitting these big moments. But today we're going to step into the New Testament, and, and over the next few weeks, we're really just going to get hard and, and heavy into the idea of Jesus. And take what Brad talked about last week, where he talked about that time that God had us just waiting. And he talked about the right time and how things fell into place in the world and God utilized that, utilized what was going on in the world for his benefit and, and how he does that in our life still to this day. And as we get ready to jump into this today, next couple of weeks, as we, as we talk more about Jesus, we're going to talk about what Jesus taught us, what Jesus did for us. We're going to talk about the sacrifice that Jesus made. But today we're going to address a different topic about him. And I'm going to ask you all a question. It's a question that I remember hearing one of my first days of Bible college. Uh, the, the professor asked us this question. 
And he said it was something that we're all going to have to answer at some point in time. So here's the question that we're going to answer today. It's simple. Who is Jesus? Who is he? That's a question that all of us, no matter what on this earth might divide us or make us different, every single one of us will have to answer this question at some point in our lives. Who is Jesus? I don't know where you're at today as you, you've, you've come here. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've followed Jesus for a long time, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're here trying Jesus on for size, if you're watching online and somebody just shared this into your news feed, I don't know. But we all have to answer that question. So who is Jesus? Is he just this great figure from history? Like, you know, Julius Caesar or George Washington? Or is he God? Or are you falling somewhere in between? Like you're trying to figure that out. Who is Jesus? If you're like me, and you've been around the church for a long time, you follow Jesus for a long time, it's an easy question to answer. Like I will tell you that Jesus is God, that Jesus is my Messiah. He's my Savior. And if you're not there yet, I just ask that you, you let us take you there and lead you there. <laughs> That's, that's our job. Like Our job depends on that. So please, let us lead you there, okay? But who is the Messiah? That's what we're going to unpack today. And I like how the New Testament doesn't waste any time declaring Jesus to be Messiah. Again, last week, Brad talked about that time between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. Most Bibles, it's two pages. They're usually blank for some reason. There's a blank sheet in there. And then it says the New Testament. And then you flip it over. And Matthew chapter 1, Matthew starts with a genealogy listing all of these names of, of where Jesus came from, but it starts off Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Waste no time in declaring him to be that. Or you might read a more technical translation, like the English Standard or the New American Standard, and it'll say Jesus Christ. Not the Messiah, but Jesus Christ. And, and as we jump into this today, a lot of you know this, some of you may not, Christ is not part of Jesus' name. Like, if you're like me, I grew up, I'm like, man, I wonder if Jesus had any cousins, you know, like, like Judas Christ or like, you know, Brian Christ or whatever. That wasn't his last name, you know. My cousins have my same last name, but Christ wasn't part of his name. And somewhere along the line, we as a people not only made it his last name, we gave him a middle initial too. Usually you hear that when somebody's very frustrated. And I don't know why it's H, and I don't know what the H stands for. Is it Hank? Is it Henry? I don't know. But that's beside the point. Another class, another time. Christ isn't a name, Christ is actually a title. And that's why a lot of times, especially in those more technically accurate translations of the Bible, it doesn't say Jesus Christ, it'll say Christ Jesus. It puts it before, kind of the same you might if he was king, the king Jesus. But Christ, or Messiah, you see those words and they can be used interchangeably because they're different language translations of the same thing. They both point back to the, 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 the person that God would send. And the word Christ is actually an English translation of a Greek translation. It's this word in the Greek. It's the word Christos. Christos is, is the Greek version. And in the Hebrew, it's the word Mashiach. Those are both the same word, and they translate to the one who is anointed, the Greek and the Hebrew. The one who is anointed, the one that God will send, the one that God will deliver to his people so that the people can be delivered to him. And, and the idea of a Messiah of a Savior, of a Christ, is such a deeply layered idea and topic that we can spend hours and hours studying this topic, but yet also, too, sometimes the Bible shows us the most simple way to begin to understand this. 
And rather than diving into the idea of Christ or Messiah or one of these, these titles that, that takes so long to understand, I like, in some ways, the most simple description that was given to Jesus by a man named John the Baptist. John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus, and here's what he says. He sees him walking towards him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He goes right into an illustration that everybody there would have completely understood right then and there. And, and, and we read this, Lamb of God, and, and we understand what lambs meant to the, the people of Israel. We'll kind of get into that here in a minute. But to kind of understand this topic, whether it's as simple as saying the Lamb or as complex as saying the Christ, to understand this, I want to start unpacking this conversation that we see Jesus have later in his life. In Matthew chapter 22, if you've got a Bible and want to follow, we're going to camp there for a minute. Matthew 22, it's a couple of days before he goes to the cross. He's, he, he's already in Jerusalem. He's ridden it on the donkey already. And he's having this conversation that starts in chapter 21. And he keeps throwing these parables out to the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the experts, the ones who had the law memorized and the Old Testament memorized. He's throwing these, the, these parables out that they don't understand. And as it's going on and on, in the middle of this conversation, in, in chapter 22, verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, Who is the Messiah? What do you think about the Messiah? Who is he? Again, they're the experts. They're the ones, of anyone, who are probably going to have the Messiah figured out. But he asks him an interesting follow-up question. Whose son is he? Like, who is the Messiah? What do you think of him? And whose son is he? Well, the Pharisees, they're going to know this answer immediately. They're going to know exactly what to answer. And they say this in verse 42. It's the son of David. Well, they're not wrong. Because that opening of, of the book of Matthew that I just mentioned lays out where Jesus came from David 14 generations later. He came from David about a thousand years later. And that was always prophesied is that the Messiah will come from David's line because David wasn't just a king to the Israelites. He was the king to the Israelites. He was the one who basically established them as a legitimate kingdom. And, and they were united under him. And he, he helped build their city, Jerusalem, this great city that they still held uh, so dearly to them uh, a thousand years later. So they're, they're very prompt in saying the Messiah will be the son of David, because that's what they had heard all along. Jesus, as he typically does, he doesn't just take their answer and say, that's correct or that's incorrect. He layers it, because he's Jesus and he can do this, and he likes to make people think so he follows up their response in verse 43 by saying to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls the Messiah Lord? And then he quotes David from Psalm 110. He quotes him, he says, for he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then he follows it up with one more question. If then David calls him Lord... How can he be his son? Now we read this, and this is probably lost on us a little bit. But it wouldn't be lost on the Pharisees whatsoever. Because in the Jewish culture, a father was always greater than his son. A son could never claim to be greater than his father. That was to disrespect his father. That was to basically say his father was nothing. That's why the story of the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that, it was such a scandalous story at the time. Such a scandalous example, because you've got this son who basically tells his father, I wish you would just go ahead and die so I could have your money. 
Like that's when he asks for his money, that's what he's telling his father. You're still alive, but I want my inheritance so I don't have to deal with you anymore. And he runs off and then he, he blows it all and he, he comes back in shame. And, and when the Jews heard that, you know what they were rooting for. That if he walked up, the father would have said, no, you're done. You're a, you're a shameful presence now. Go, go die alone somewhere. That's what the father should have done in their eyes. But what's he do? He runs out to him and he wraps his arms around him. And that was a scandalous story for them because no respecting father would have done that. You, 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 you loved your children, but you had your name and your honor to protect. And, and so the idea of a son being greater than a father was insulting to the Jews, was insulting to them in this particular time. And so Jesus is saying, if the Messiah is the son of David, how can David refer to him as Lord? Because that, that's a, a title of honor. No father would call his son Lord. And it says here, in verse 46, that no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They, he's been, been stumping them for the last probably hour with all these coded stories, these parables. These stories that he would tell them that they didn't understand immediately, and he often wouldn't explain to them, at least immediately. He might come back and explain them later, but he leaves them with the biggest head scratcher of all. Now to understand from our context here, what Jesus is saying, we need to go back and actually look at what it was David said that Jesus quoted here. Because we read this in Matthew, and Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. And just a little helpful bit of advice here, anytime the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's always a good idea to go back and read the Old Testament on top of it. And just to see the similarities and to see where it might be slightly different. Here's what David actually wrote in Psalm 110. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, when you first read that, it looks the same. And when you compare them side by side, the first thing that's going to jump out to you that's different really isn't different. Like we hear in Psalm, it says, sit at my right hand, I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In Matthew, Jesus quotes David this way, set at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, again, the wording is different there. The meaning's exactly the same. Like, you could almost say, I'll make your enemies a, a floor mat under your feet. It's kind of the same idea. You get the concept. What's, what's missing with that is the differences in the language. You translate something from one language to another, it's going to come out a little differently but still mean the same thing. But there's another difference here that had the Pharisees stopped and really looked at, they would have made more sense to them, and it makes more sense to us. But to show you that, before I show you that, I want to kind of show you an example first. Translating from one language to another, things get lost. And sometimes things get clouded and confused. I've heard from several people who, who learned English as an adult how difficult English is to learn, like maybe the most difficult language to learn on the planet, especially American English. Why? Because we have way too many words. We have small words and big words that mean the same thing, but we like to say the big words because we sound more intelligent. Not smart, intelligent. You know, we like to sound more, um, you know, like, like, like we just know so much more. So much more sophisticated, you know. We like those words. We like to sound condescending to some people. That means talking down to people, assuming they don't know what you're talking about.
Thank you. <laughs> that was an awkward laugh. It just slowly built. So I was just going to see what happened with it, okay? But I just want to show you an example because we have so many words that look or sound the same but have totally different meanings. Like, 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 let's start with this one. Tell me what this word is. Somebody just shout it out. Lead. Okay, L-E-D, lead. Not the acronym L-E-D, which means something totally different. It talks about your TV at home. But lead, it's a past tense verb, right? I led this team. I led this, I, 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 you, you were in charge or you did the most of something. Okay, that's lead. What about this word? I hear some of you, don't get ahead of me. It's not lead yet, okay? It's, it's lead. Right now it's lead, okay? The word lead. Now, what does this word mean? Well, it's a noun, and it means uh, it's, it's an element. You know, it's what we have in our pencils so we can write. It's what used to be under my hometown in the whole Ottawa County area there in Oklahoma that was mined out back before World War II. Now, take this same word here, and it's a new word. Now it's lead. What does lead mean? Well, it's like a, uh, could be an active verb. It could be a present tense verb. I'm going to lead this team. I'm going to lead this, this meeting. Or it's a present tense verb to describe somebody who's ahead. The royals are in the lead. They're beating the tigers three to two. I know that probably doesn't happen very often that the royals are in the lead. The royals are in the lead. Just go with me. I thought of it on the fly. Okay, just go with me. I'm already mourning the loss of baseball season before it ever gets here. So just go with me, okay? Just go with me. Okay, but then this word has another meaning. It's a noun. A lead is also what you call a leash that a dog is on. When you're training a dog, that's a lead. The dog's on the lead. So that same word has three meanings and two pronunciations. And then there's this word, this next one. Lead. It's the first line in a newspaper article or a magazine article. Basically, the lead in a story is, is, is telling you what the story is going to be all about. You see where language can get confusing? You have five words, three spellings, two pronunciations. Things can get lost in the translation. And one of the things that gets lost from the Old Testament to the New is things that were translated from Hebrew to Greek and then Greek to Latin and Latin to English and English into various translations that we have. And one of those that really stands out, go back to the verse there in Psalm 110, is the most important part. It's not about what God's going to do with the enemies of Jesus. It's about who David is referring to in this passage. Look at this verse again in, in Psalm 110. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. See anything different? You don't notice this in Matthew. Because in Matthew, the word Lord is the same word both times. It's the Greek word kurios. But here in the Hebrew, it's two different words. And it's specifically, it's two different names. They're names of God. The first one, where it's all capital letters there. That's the, 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 the Hebrew name Yahweh. And Yahweh is one of dozens of names for God in the Bible, but Yahweh is, is like maybe the name. Like, like it's, it's, it's such a powerful and holy name. There's really not even a true good definition for what Yahweh means. So one of the best ways to describe it is that Yahweh just means I am. It was such a holy name for God that the Jewish people wouldn't even pronounce it out loud. Like, they weren't worthy to say this name out loud. 
And, and so for me, I look at Yahweh, and it shows that God is this eternal creator, but yet also personal and, and holy. He, he's, he's I am. And when you read the Old Testament and you see the Lord in all capital letters, that's Yahweh every single time. Because it's the original translators giving it a little bit more respect, I guess. Giving it a little bit more something. And any other Lord could be one of a dozen names for God. But in this case here in Psalm 110, the second Lord that you see that's spelled like we might spell an actual name with a capital letter and then lowercase letters to follow is the Greek name or the Greek word Adonai. Adonai is is almost more of a title than a name. It is a name, but it's it's a title that could be used for, for the Jewish people to describe God, but also to describe people. Like it's a title of respect. It's a title of prestige and honor. Like, like just like the, the title Lord is, is used across human history to describe people, people in high places, so to speak. I, I automatically thought of like, like people in England, you know, being referred to as a Lord or a lady. And then I also automatically thought of Star Wars because that's what I do. And so I thought of Star Wars with, with Lord Vader, you know, and like that, he's a bad guy, but you know, he had a title, he had an honor, he, he had prestige. That's where Lord comes from. Jump back to what Jesus asked the Pharisees here. How can David say, my Lord said to my Lord, and the son of David be a Lord? It's simple. David is making a declaration a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the scene, and he is saying that this Messiah will be the son of God and also the son of man. He's going to be God and he's going to be man. He's going to be divine and human. And that was something that I think even, even the, the Pharisees had a hard time fully figuring out. Because they thought it was just going to be some person who was blessed and was sent by God to deliver them. And here's the issue we run into when we get to the New Testament. Again, Brad hit on this last week. You've had 400 years of silence from God. 400 years of them not hearing from God. And over that course of time, the Israelites have replaced God as the focal point of everything that they do. And they've started instead looking at the world around them. And God's still there, but he's no longer, they don't look through him to see everything else. And once that happens, once that happens, your storm starts to become a little bigger than your God. And the Messiah that you want is no longer God in flesh. It's just somebody to come save us. Does that sound familiar? Because that's, that's exactly where we're at right now, folks. That's exactly where our culture is at. Over these past uh, couple of, of decades, I mean, in, in my adult life even, going back the last couple of decades, we've taken God from the center of our lives, and we haven't just thrown him out. We've just moved him. We've moved him over here. And he's still there when we turn to look at him, but we have to turn to look at him to notice that he's there. When he's at the center, everything goes through him. And we've moved him off to the side, and as a result... Now, we have contextualized everything about God, about his church, about the Bible, about Jesus. And we start looking for a different Messiah than the one that God sent for us. I mean, just think about this. Once upon a time, yes, they were looking for the Messiah that would bring them back to God. Now, by the time we get to the book of Matthew, they're just looking for for a hero. They're looking for the next David, the next king to come in and reestablish Israel. That's what they want here. And again, Brad hit on this last week. By this time in in history, Rome has come into Palestine and taken it over. 
Israel has been conquered by many different nations and kingdoms over the centuries. But just before, a few decades before the New Testament starts, Israel is under oppression. They're, they're, they're being ruled by another, another nation. And they reach out to Rome and ask for help. And Rome comes in and helps them. Rome drives out the oppressors. They were so friendly and nice to do that. And then once they were there, they thought, you know what? We kind of like this place. We'll just take it over ourselves. And so then they hung out, and, and, and then they oppressed the, the Israelites, and that's what the Israelites were hoping at this point. Their Messiah needed to be a conquering king, needed to ride in on the white horse and throw Rome out. I mean, we even see this. Several times it says that, that, that Jesus had to slip away from the people because they were ready to make him king by force if they had to. And even his disciples thought this. In fact, when Jesus strolls into Jerusalem, on Palm Sunday, which he's just done a couple of days before this conversation, he rides in on a donkey. Folks, that was a kingly declaration right there. Like, like that was a coronation event that Jesus did. But there was one thing they missed. He wasn't riding in so he could jump on a throne in Jerusalem. He was riding in to declare that his kingdom is here, but it's not here. It's not of this world. It's a kingdom for the eternal. And they missed that. They missed that because they had started focusing too much on what was around them. But when he declared himself in that moment that his kingdom was here, the Pharisees finally started to click. This guy's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. That, that's what made them so mad. That's why they ultimately accused him of blasphemy and decided to stick him on a cross. And that's why the Romans relented and let him let them do it, because they viewed Jesus as a threat to their peace and to their establishment. See, here's the problem with the Pharisees. It's too often, too often it's easy to paint them as the villains in the story. But we also have the luxury of looking back with 2,000 years of hindsight. If we were in the story of Jesus... We were in the story of the Old Testament. Folks, let's be honest. I think a lot of us would drift towards being a Pharisee way too easily. Why? Because even today in our world, we feel the need to defend God at all costs. That's what they were doing. This is what they thought they were doing. They were trying to do that. They weren't doing it very well, but that's what they were trying to do. And if somebody rolls in that we as the experts didn't identify and point out, that we as the ones who know all of this didn't say, okay, there's the Messiah over there, then that person must be wrong, especially, especially someone who's this, this, this uneducated peasant from a backwater hick town called Nazareth. Okay? They looked down on the people of Galilee. Same way we might look down on people from, say, I don't know, Arkansas. You know? That got more laughs at 8 o'clock. I mean, gosh. <laughs> Come on. As Okies, we have one state we can look down on, and it's Arkansas. Give me my moment, okay? <laughs> Every other state in the country gets to look down on us. That's the one that we get, okay? That's, I'm kidding. If you're from Arkansas, I'm kidding, and I'm sorry that you're from Arkansas. But that's... <laughs> but we think this, because when we see people step into a role, especially a, a role of authority, there's qualifications that we're looking for. There's qualifications that we want. You don't want just some random person off the street to do brain surgery, for example. 
You want somebody who's been trained. And, and specifically, you would like somebody trained at a place that you kind of think is a good place to be trained by. Not just a, a med school in a back alley somewhere. You want them to really be trained well. That's what they were expecting out of the Messiah. But here's the problem. Jesus showed up that day. And he showed up throughout the next three years. And time and time again, people realized he wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. Because over the course of time, they had taken what the Bible told them, and they had twisted it just enough that he no longer met their expectations. He no longer met what they were wanting. Folks, we can do the same thing. And we do way too often. We try to put Jesus into a box that we built. He's not going to fit there. We try to make him match a resume we've written for him. He's not going to. We try to make Jesus out to be something other than what he actually is. And then when he doesn't check off all those boxes, I don't want to say we just throw him out, but, you know, we, we don't honor him as much as we should. We don't worship him as much as we, as we should. We think often that Jesus came simply to fix my problems or to fix your problems, or to fix what's going on in our world today. That's what the Jews were thinking here in this particular moment. So let's get back to the question I asked you at the very beginning. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Let me just tell you this. He didn't come to fill the current expectations of first century, first century Israel. He didn't come to fill the current expectations of 21st century USA. No, he was sent to fill the true needs and the eternal expectations of all God's people. From those first century Israelites all the way through us today and everyone in between and everyone who's going to come from us or after us later. That's why he came. He was sent to fill those. That's why he made declarations like the Gospel of John records, those I am statements in John, where he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am uh, the, the living water. I am the, the, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, the true vine, on and on and on. Those have deep meanings to them. And if we pause and reflect on those meanings, we'll see what he's trying to say. He's the bread of life. What's that mean? It means that he'll sustain us forever and that we don't need anything else. He's the light of the world. What's that mean? It means he shows us the path. He's, he's the way, the truth, and the life. It means that we don't get to go to, to God without him. That he came to bring us to God, to lead us back to God. He tells us those things. The Messiah wasn't sent just to help Israel physically. He was sent by God to deliver Israel spiritually. And that's where we miss it sometimes. I get it. It's easy to get caught up in what's going on in front of my face. It's easy to get caught up in the physical or, or, or the, the, the worldly issues that, that are in my life. We all have them. Some of us have them more than others. We, we kind of take turns sometimes having more than others. But that's not the reason that he came. Not to say he doesn't care about those. He does. He tells us to cast all of our, our cares on him. But he came for our, whole, our heart and our soul. He came to deliver us. I mean, just look at how the, the New Testament describes him in so many different ways. The New Testament, it calls him the Son of God. Paul, in, in the book of Romans, this letter that was written to Christians in Rome. This letter that has really shaped the Christian faith and doctrine maybe more than anything else ever written. Paul starts it off by saying this about Jesus, that the good news is about 
the Son of God. It says, in this earthly life, he was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says he's the Son of God. Because he's the Son of God, he belongs to God, and he's from God, and he has God's name. My son has my name. Okay, my, my daughters have my name, but they may change that one of these days. My son has my name. I have my dad's name. This is a generational thing throughout most cultures. We, we share names. He belongs to me. I belong to my dad, etc. He belongs to God. But it also calls him the son of man. And that's a description Jesus uses for himself often. And it's kind of a double, double meaning, I think, on this. Because he says this, this one stands out to me in Mark 13, everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power, with glory. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in some of his mission statements when he says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Or the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we see this, and I think it's, it's two part. If the Son of God means he belongs to God, Son of Man means he belongs to man. He's He's human. He shares our humanity, and with our humanity, he puts on our, our frailty. He puts on our suffering. He puts on our emotions. And I say that because how many of you are glad you have all the range of emotions that you have? <laughs> some of us would like to hone some of our emotions down a little bit, or maybe just get rid of a couple altogether. And Jesus put those on. And he did that, I think, like this first states, because at the end of days... He will judge us. And when he became one of us, I think that gave him a little bit more ability to judge us better. That's just kind of my two cents on that. I think it gave him the, it gave him the I won't say the understanding, he's God, he knows all, but it let us relate to him better. It also calls him in, in the New Testament, it just calls him Lord. We've kind of gone over this one a little bit, but, but Lord, the Greek word kurios, what this statement in the New Testament does, when we see it over and over, is often we see Jesus be tied directly to something that the Old Testament said only God can do. Or a declaration from God, the New Testament plugs Jesus in there with him. Like, like look at this example from Isaiah 45. This is God talking through the prophet. I've sworn by my own name. I've spoken the truth. I'll never go back on my words. And here's, here's the statement. Every knee will bend to me. Every tongue will declare allegiance to me. If that sounds familiar, it's because the Apostle Paul wrote these words in the book of Philippians when he said, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a pretty bold declaration to say that every knee will bow to God and only God and every tongue will declare that God is, is, is God and only God and then Paul says, oh yeah, also Jesus. We're going to bow to Jesus and we're going to declare Jesus Lord. This is a huge, huge statement by the Apostle Paul. Why? Because again, this is the Roman world. It's led by an emperor, also known as Caesar, and guess what he went by? God. Lord. And Paul's saying, no, no, we're not going to go bow to that God. We're going to bow to Jesus, who is God, who is Lord. That's who we're going to bow to. And he, there's another example in the, the New Testament as well, too. Jesus is called Savior. He's called Savior. This was another one that was a radical, a radical declaration of Jesus to the Jewish people. 
And it started with the first announcement of Jesus. Remember the Christmas story. Charlie Brown standing on the stage in in that great scene. And what is it that he quotes from Luke chapter 2? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. The Messiah, the Lord. Jesus is not only the Son of God, and he's not only the Son of Man, and he's not only Lord, but he saves us from our sin. Paul says it in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why is that such a radical statement? I gave you that verse in Isaiah just a minute ago. Two verses before, God very boldly declares, only I can save But then here's Paul saying, oh yeah, Jesus saves. Jesus can save because he's God. He's God and he was in flesh. And he can save you from your sin. Only God can save people, but Jesus can save people. Put that together. It says that Jesus is God. And that's that's what else the New Testament says about him. It says that he was God in the flesh. And it just goes right at that. The Gospel of John, I love how it starts. It doesn't start with the Christmas story or a genealogy. No, it starts different than all the others. It starts at the beginning of time. When it says that in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there in the beginning, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And then a few verses later, it says that the Word became flesh. And it made his dwelling among us. Literally translates, he pitched his tent in our camp. He came to live with us. Why? Because he loved us. And he wanted to reach us. He wanted to bring us back to God. That, to me, folks, that's what separates Christianity from any other belief system on the planet. We have a God who became one of us. He didn't give us this list of requirements to get to him. No, he came to us. He came to us and he put on our frailty and our suffering and our emotions and all that came with it, knowing what was waiting for him at the end of his walk. He did it willingly. That's why John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. That simple statement, the Lamb in in this culture, meant so much to them. But specifically, it meant their atonement with God. It meant their reconciliation with God. It meant that God delivered them. Remember the story of Abraham? If you don't, it kind of goes like this. God uh, took this man who was 100 years old and finally blessed him with a son after 100 years. And then a few years later said, I need you to sacrifice your son that you've waited a literal lifetime to have. And Abraham is ready to do it. And what was it? Just as he raises the knife, what was it that he found stuck in a bush? It was a lamb. A ram, a a male sheep. He sent a lamb to deliver Isaac. A lamb was used as a sign of atonement for the sins of the the, the Israelites. They would slaughter a lamb, and specifically the lamb that was without blemish, the most pure lamb they had. That blood of that lamb would cover their sins. Here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who's coming to take away the sin of the people. Folks, for the Israelites today and for us today, that stands out. And to me, there's two major reasons why that stands out. The first one is this. He's called us out of the darkness into his light. His light shines in our darkness. 
our world, I don't have to tell you this, is getting darker and darker by the day because we're turning away from God. But the light of Jesus, it shows us which way to go. It says in verse 5 of John 1 that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but if you turn a light on, like the darkness is gone instantly. Okay, the darkness has no answer for the light. Jesus tells us this. He declares himself to be light in John 8 when he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, here's a little catch with that. Kind of like that old passage in the Old Testament where it says the word is a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. He's not going to show you the whole road. I know. we, We wish he would. I'd love to see what's on the other end of the runway. Now, what's a lamp do? It shows me my next two or three steps. It shows me what's right in front of me. It shows me if I need to move to the right or the left or just keep going straight. It shows me if I need to stop and wait for just a little bit. That's what our lights do. Jesus says to follow him and we'll have his light. But the Lamb of God also, it gives us a new identity in the Father. Folks, our our world... I think, is struggling with this right now. But the promise that we get, there in John 1, verse 12, when it says, to everyone who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. What he's saying is that there is no description or claim that the world can make on you or give you that's going to matter. We struggle right now so much in our culture with identity. And I mean this across a whole spectrum. Yeah, the, the one that always jumps to the light is, is gender identity, but it's, there's so much more than that. We struggle with identity across the board. Who am I? What am I made for? What's my purpose? Who am I supposed to be? Whose am I? That's a question that we all struggle with. But he says, none of that matters. What matters, he says, is that I have claimed you. I have given you this title. And all the things you could use to describe me, husband, father, firstborn son, College graduate, I can tell you my Enneagram, you know, all that. None, of that. none of it matters. What matters is that he calls me his child. What matters is he has come to me to bring me to God. That's the Messiah. I said a few weeks ago that where sin is, God can't be. But the Messiah comes to us and takes away our sin so that we can be brought back to God. We can be brought back to him. I, I don't know today where you're at, each one of you individually. I don't know how you answer the question, who is Jesus? I, I don't know. That's, that's something that you know or that you can work to figure out. But can I just, just, just ask you this question? If you can't call him Messiah or God, man, man what's it take to get you there? Because I want to help you get there. I want to help you answer that question that way. I want to help you see that light that he shines to us today. Because he is our light. He is, folks, he's our God. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. That you sent him to us. That he was, he's you. That he came to us. As Paul writes in the book of Romans, at just the right time, you sent him to us to die for us. 
And at just the right time, he died for the ungodly. Those of us that, that didn't know him, that were running away from him, he still came and died for us at just the right time while we were still sinners. And God, I just pray for any heart today that is still searching and seeking, that is still trying to figure out who he is and trying to understand where he came from. You would remind them they don't have to understand everything to believe. But God, you would soften hearts and speak to hearts and speak to souls and guide them. And God, for those who who have been able to call him Messiah for a long time, God, you would remind us, remind them to always focus on you, to keep our eyes on you, to not lose sight of you. God, that we are always continuing to seek you, to know more and more about you, to continue to become like you. God, we're so grateful for your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Messiah came, the Lamb of God came to be a sacrifice for us. We're going to step into our time of communion. If you didn't get a communion cup earlier, you can grab one. There's some tables around the room that have them on there. But as we step into this time, it's our time where we stop. We stop what we're doing and we remember him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That on that cross, he took our sin away and he brought us back to the Father. Father, we're so grateful for your son. I ask as we bless you in this time, you would you would be with us. We never forget what he did for us. We pray this in his name.